Joel, you need to keep it. No, I'm not going to cut this. I'm, this is this is the entire art. The entire chapter is going to be an I mean, inane related. discussion of third space, and people are like, "This is a terrible <laughs> podcast. This is terrible." It's like this is what you get when you get high with nephrologists. What is the second space? I don't want to emphasize. Nobody is high on this podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated function. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis, this is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 14, Hypovolemic State, a chapter which has polarized the channel group. And I am looking forward to a spirited discussion about the pros and cons of this chapter of the book. Tonight we are down one member of the crew. We're pouring one out for Anna, who is not going to join us tonight. But uh, we do have Josh. Hi, Josh Waitzman here. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Josh, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, I have a Tipperary. And that's a spirit? What is that? That is a mix of whiskey, sweet vermouth, and green chartreuse. Is that, is that what scientists drink? No, it's what people who have the, the aviary... <laughs> Aviary cocktail book drinks. Well done. Roger. Roger Rodby, nephrologist, Chicago, uh, Rush Presbyterian, St. Luke's. Is it Mountain Dew again tonight? It is Mountain Dew. <laughs> Every time. No. I, I've, I've had Scott. I didn't know that. Amy. Uh, I'm Amy Yao. I'm a nephrologist at um, The Ohio State University, and I'm drinking hot water, which I think is like an Asian thing. Do other people just drink like hot water? My husband makes fun of me all the time. Oh, oh, okay. my, my mom, no, no one my else does that. My mom, my grandma used to do that a lot. And okay. they're not Asian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's delicious if you haven't tried it. So. J- JC. Juan Carlos Velez, nephrologist at Altner in New Orleans. And what are you drinking tonight? I don't have a drink, but I have some uh, lemon drops. I'm gonna be. Oh my god, I was so worried about. I don't have a drink, but I have, and I had no idea where that was going. I was very worried. I was very worried, but it wasn't fentanyl, so we can move along. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Melanie. Melanie Honig. I'm a nephrologist with Josh at uh, Beth Israel Deacons Medical Center, and tonight I have Sauvignon Blanc and uh, a screw, a very you know screw off cap. But uh, the picture on the bottle looked nice, so. And last, but certainly not least, Letty. Hi, I'm Leticia Rolon, nephrologist at UCSF, and today I'm drinking water. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And, and Very appropriate. I know that. Letty is on service. How many, how, raise your hand if you're also on service. I'm on service. Amy's on service. JC's on service. Excellent. Very good. It's good that the people who are drinking are not on service. <laughs> There's a high correlation. Very good. Okay. Hypovolemia. Burton Rose starts out, he says that the ED, it starts off with hypovolemic states, says the etiology, true volume depletion occurs when fluid is lost from the extracellular fluid at a rate exceeding intake. 
And uh, he says it can come from the GI tract, the lungs, the urine, or sequestration into third space. And he goes through all three of those. GI tract, lungs, urine. He does end up talking about insensibles and skin, but he didn't make the uh, the early list. And then he says that when we have fluid losses, there are two responses to ameliorate. One, we will increase our intake of sodium and fluids. And he actually says that that's actually typically not super important because our basal intake of water and sodium is way greater than needed. And so we usually can compensate for that. And he points out that one of the problems, though, is if you have GI losses, you may not be able to compensate in that regard. And then secondly, the kidney responds by minimizing further urinary losses. And he kind of leans into this. He says um, says that this adaptive response is why diuretics do not cause progressive volume loss, right? And, you know, and this is something that, you know, medical students sometimes will stumble over because they don't have a lot of experience. So they go, well, why don't, if you keep taking Lasix every day, why don't you get progressively more and more volume depleted? What finally happens? And this has been, I think we've covered this in every other chapter of this book is this, you know, diuretic breaking phenomena. And it's kind of interesting because he does have slightly different versions of his explanation. But here he talks about that the initial volume loss will stimulate the, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and possibly other compensatory mechanisms resulting in increased proximal and collecting tubule sodium reabsorption. And this will balance the diuretic effect resulting in a new steady state within one to two weeks. And so ultimately your sodium in will once again equal sodium out. JC, what do you want to say? That's a, a, a topic that comes very often in discussion when we talk about thiocytes inducing hyponatremia and how thiocytes can induce uh, hypercalcemia, how the, the hypothesis that in thiocytes you become volume depleted and that promotes a more proximal tubular reabsorption and therefore hypercalcemia. I'm not entirely convinced of that mechanism, but it's, it's again, the same concept of a, a state of avid reabsorption that follows a state of, di- of naturesis. Yeah, and this this is a, this is Roger's favorite kind of concept. Also, is that the tissues of the kidney vary of the tubule really vary so much by segment that any one and blocking any one particular segment can always be compensated by something else for sodium. For sodium, that, that right, right, and that right, and that's what's unique is that sodium is reabsorbed throughout the nephron, and it, and it makes sense because sodium is life. And let me just clarify what I said. I said thiazide hyponatremia. What I meant to say is. The principle by which some think thiazides work to treat nephrogenic DI, which is inducing some sort of a bone depletion so that the proximal tubular reabsorption increases and less water delivery is available to cause the acaresis that we have this nephrogenic DI. So if you think about that mechanism and the hypercalcemia mechanism from thiazides, both come to the same notion of a increase proximal tool reabsorption following the naturesis. And a new steady state. In a new steady state. It says two weeks, and I assume that's a variable period, depending on the underlying uh, kidney function, I suppose. Uh, not to get too off topic, but I don't know if we talked about it earlier, but when I was preparing for my grand rounds that I gave today, I actually talked about thiazide-associated hyponatremia, and I guess that is associated with, like, this prostaglandin transporting mutation. We know about this, right? Okay. All right. I didn't know about it until I read about it. It's- no, 
Can you tell? Yeah. Oh, we haven't so talked we haven't about it? Talked oh, about it. And, and I think this is no. a, a a large misconception, constantly mistreat, mistaught, right? It's We always think it, taught, teach it as classic volume depletion hyponatremia, and it's way more complex than that. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah. Well, at least a study that, that I read, they looked at um, about 100 patients that had thiazide-associated hyponatremia, and they did like different you know, GWAS studies, and they, they found, I think, in half of the patients that they had genetic information for, that there was a mutation in this prostaglandin transporter. And basically, the theory is, is that, that for some reason, you have this high ADH state. Vasopressin stimulates both the, both the V2 receptor to cause aquapore channels to get inserted into the apical membrane, right? So you get water reabsorption. But at the same time, it increases the synthesis of prostaglandin 2, which is secreted into the tubular lumen and then reabsorbed by the cell by this prostaglandin transporter to act on the basolateral surface. And what that does is that ends up reabsorbing or endocytosing those aquaporin cells uh, channels from the apical membrane. So basically, you have this quick onset from V2 that causes aquaporin channel insertion, and then you have this slow feedback where it also stimulates prostaglandin, so that way you end up re-endocytosing those um, aquaporin channels. And so what they found is that these patients who got thiazide-associated hyponatremia, for some reason they had this defect in their prostaglandin transporter, and so they were not able to re-endocytose those aquaporin channels from the apical membrane. And so they had basically an AVP-independent aquaporin-mediated water reabsorption that they think is why they develop hyponatremia. No checks and balances, huh? Yeah. Yeah, basically. That's amazing. I thought it was oh, really interesting. super cool. Yeah. No, and, that, and, that, yeah, that like, and it also okay. starts to make you think that, oh, instead of this kind of idiopathic reaction to thiazides, we're like, oh, some people get it or some people don't, we could actually do genetic testing and find out people that would be susceptible to this hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because but again, and, and this 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 observation brings back to the whole reason I've been always skeptical that thiazides are effective in nephrogenic DI because they promote proximal tool reabsorption, which is the same reason hypercalcemia tends to be explained. Is really not this mechanism is much more compelling to know that thiazides somehow lead to direct. Uh, effect in water reabsorption in the collecting duct. And and also, like, this suggests a mechanism by which you could get around this, right? Thiazides are one of our best blood pressure controlling medicines. You could imagine adding tolvaptan to someone who has thiazide-induced hyponatremia and being able to actually keep them on that medicine and control their blood pressure without reaching for, like, a TID med or some other crazy stuff. Yeah, you could add a drug that costs a couple hundred dollars a day to be able to keep the medication that costs 25 cents a day. I, I like the way Blood pressure control. control saves lives, Joel. I don't I don't know if you've heard about this. Hypertension is the silent killer. Um, I'm not sure. If it, I've, I've read that article. We did that actually in FJC a number of years ago. And they characterize some of these patients get hyponatremia. And first of all, the speed at which they develop hyponatremia is stunning. It's within it's, hours of taking a dose of thiazide. It's incredible. I mean, uh, yeah. the only way the math can work is that you have a massive naturesis in addition to water retention. It is. It's a, it's a, when you dive it's in, stunning. thiazide-induced hypotremia, way more interesting than it is normally taught as. But that is not tonight's chapter. <laughs> <laughs> we must move on because we're still on page one. <laughs> can I actually say something? I'm sorry, just to bring us back to the to the, wait, the first sentence that you said, or one of the first sentences in the introduction. Um, you said the word from the text minimizes urinary losses. 
And I think using language like that is very helpful for learners because if you say reabsorb, sometimes that makes them think that you're going to, if you have, whenever you have vasopressin on, for example, you're going to increase water and you're going to develop hyponatremia from reabsorption, not recognizing you're really limiting losses of what you already have. And so I, I like that word a lot or that Excellent. language a lot. So then he goes into uh, GI losses and he kind of walks through the physiology here. So that stomach, pancreas, gallbladder, and intestine secrete three to six liters a day. But stool losses is only 100 to 200 ml of fluid a day. And so you have this, this massive transit of secretion in multiple liters, reabsorption largely in the colon, so that ultimately very little fluid loss in the, in the stool. And that volume depletion results if you have either a surgical drain or a failure of this reabsorption. And that's something we're certainly we're all familiar as being human with uh, diarrhea and loss of that reabsorption. And then he leans into the acid-base disturbances that are associated with these GI losses and that the stomach losses cause metabolic alkalosis and then anything south of the stomach or distal to the stomach is going to cause metabolic acidosis because those secretions are alkalotic. I think the degree of reabsorption here was something I hadn't appreciated as much. And so like that idea of losing acidic secretions, like it's secreted, what's the big deal? It's like it would have all been reabsorbed except you threw it up. And so now it can't be reabsorbed. And so like that made a lot more sense to me after reading this section. Yeah, everything everything in the stomach gets back titrated and everything from the pancreas, all the bicarb gets back titrated. So all that stuff is kind of a, it's a, it's a no sum game, you know, but if, if you drain them in the middle, you have a big problem. If you drain the stomach, it's not back titrated. If you drain the pancreas with like a ileal conduit or that, then you get severely acidotic. So I like this. There's a diagram that I use when we do, um, lectures for the surgical interns going through the pH of the different parts of the GI tract. Mm -hmm. And that's super helpful in helping understand like, well, why some drains lead to acidosis, whereas others lead to alkalosis. And then he also says, he says the high content of potassium in a lot of these secretions results in hypokalemia. And I was surprised that he didn't call out the special case of the stomach, right? Mm-hmm. That the yeah. potassium content of the stomach is modest. It's just not that impressive, but it still causes, vomiting still causes profound hypokalemia through increased renal losses of potassium. And it's just, it's such an interesting mechanism. And I was surprised that Rose doesn't, you know, he he kind of approaches the topic, talks about hypokalemia, but doesn't walk through the mechanism. That- no, I was also disappointed about that. And, uh, I put in the show notes a favorite picture of the different concentrations of ions in stomach content. And just as you say, you know, gastric fluid typically has maybe almost four, like about four milliequivalents per liter. So you'd have to lose liters and liters. And I think he does go into this when in the hypokalemia chapter. And I think this was just like, he was just as, you know, again, that's why we were criticizing this chapter. At at times, it was just a little bit superficial and unlike other areas of the book. And then uh, an interesting part, he talks about uh, GI bleeds. He says that uh, bleeding from the GI tract can also cause volume depletion, but because the you're, you, the, the fluid that is lost is similar to plasma. It doesn't typically cause electrolyte disorders, which is not my experience at all. Like I get some of the most severe hyperkalemia that I've had to deal with from people with GI bleeds. And maybe that's because I deal with people, people with kidney failure all the time. 
but it, it didn't it didn't ring true when I was reading that. I was like, really? That's how you think. You know, this table 14.1, etiology of true volume depletion. Um, I mean, he goes into it, and we'll probably go into a little bit more, but it's a little bit misleading in a way because it's, you know, it talks about really fluid losses and not volume losses. And and, and, and it's really important to distinguish what your fluid is made of if it's going to represent um, volume. I agree. We are going to touch on that because we, we are going to touch on DI. Diabetes insipidus, where he kind of just separates those two, and uh, insensible skin losses. After the GI comes uh, renal losses, and actually, this was—I thought this was magnificent in the way he put this in. I'm so used to dealing with the kidney and the and GFR in per minute, and I love when he steps back and like, let's look at at the GFR per day. Right, it's 130 to 180 liters filtered per day. 98 to 99 percent is going to be reabsorbed urine output of one to two liters. And then he he says that an optimal diuresis, when you have somebody whose fluid overload is four liters a day, and that means all you need to do is decrease urine reabsorption by 2%, right? You think about all the diuretics we throw at patients to cause people to diurese, and we get four liters and we're delighted. And all we've done is we've decreased the efficiency from 100% to 98%. We're celebrating, right? <laughs> it's... It, when you think about it that way, it, all these drugs that we use that we think, oh, oh, Lasix, very potent drug. No, barely, barely scratches the surface, but that's all we need. We just need to scratch the surface and we can, and we can get what we need out of it. I thought that was, I, that to me was kind of an eye-popping moment, kind of like the best of Burton Rose. And then I want to emphasize that the very next chapter that we're going to read is on diuretics. And so I don't want to drop too much into diuretics. We're going to go, we're going to have an opportunity to go deep on them. And, and it's funny, right now I'm editing uh, chapter seven for publishing. And at the end of this, uh, Josh was supposed to talk about a, a Mieloride because when we first started, remember when we first started doing this, I was worried we weren't going to have enough content in each chapter and each each section. And I was like figuring out ways to pad it. And we, we were going to go through each one of the diuretics and this ended up not to be necessary at all. <laughs> we have the I keep teasing the Amiloride. Like I'm going to talk about guinea pig tongues and like how ENAC is super important for all this stuff. <laughs> but we're just going to save that for a bonus episode. I, I, I don't know where it's going to come out, but I, I, I just don't I, I think that was one of those things that I was worried about. Oh, we can have enough stuff to talk about has not been a problem. <laughs> but if we're going to skip the diuretics, he does spend some time talking about osmotic diuretics. And he says this is largely going to be due to hyperglycemia and it can contribute to a fluid deficit of eight to 10 liters, which was kind of an eye popping number for, uh, for out of control diabetes. I think that kind of jives with clinical experience, though, right? Like, you think about these folks you've seen with hyperosmotic, hyper, hyperglycemic states, and you think about all the fluid you've had to give them, or people with DKA. Like, it could be seven or eight or nine liters of IV crystalloid fluid without glucose in it you need to give them before that gap starts to close or, or in the honk. It, it doesn't never had a gap to start with, but that their, like, sugars start to come into a reasonable range and you start to be able to deal with them again. Uh, that didn't seem totally crazy to me. But again, you have to realize that's not eight to 10 liters from the extravascular space or you'd get in big trouble. And, and that's, that's I guess, if I had a problem with some of the way this some of this goes, it, 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 I don't know. You just I always look at my fluids as what, what they're made of and where they're coming from. And you can't get away with eight or 10 liters of extracellular fluid. I mean, a lot of what an osmotic diuretic will do is, yeah, you'll lose some sodium, but you're going to lose a lot of water. And that's going to be, you know, probably 80% of that eight to 10 liters is coming from the intracellular compartment. Yeah. As you lose water without sodium, 
your serum sodium rises, and that causes an osmotic movement of water from the intracellular compartment to the extracellular compartment, kind of restoring that volume in the extracellular compartment that could then be lost in the urine again. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great point, Roger, is that you can get these profound volume losses if it is sodium-poor fluid, whether it's diabetes insipidus, whether it's uh, uh, sweat or insensible losses, where it's largely uh, sodium-free or sodium-poor fluid, the volume losses can be much more profound than if it's an isotonic loss like blood or uh, diuretic-induced volume depletion. And then there's a section that I thought was pretty interesting looking at chronic kidney disease are poor sodium conservers, that as your GFR falls below 25, your obligate sodium losses are going to go up. And so normal patients have obligate sodium losses of about five milliequivalents a day. And that as that GFR falls, it's going to rise. And he gives a range of 10 to 40, which part of me is like, well, boy, 40 is a lot of, is still not that much sodium. My patients are all eating, you know, four times, five times that much sodium on a daily basis. And that's why we still see a lot of volume overload in those patients. But the flip side of that is, boy, don't we see a lot of volume deficiency and acute kidney injury in our patients with advanced CKD? And this is a nice explanation is that they're just less able to defend their, use their kidneys to defend their volume. Letty, I see you're shaking your head. Do you, do you have well, a, some thought on that? I mean, the only thing that I have uh, in terms of um, thoughts about this and looking at the math was that just thinking clinically, it's probably because, you know, I'm on service. Uh, right now, but I just feel like I do, obviously what he's saying makes a lot of sense, but I've also seen a lot of patients with CKD and how many times do we see them very appropriately conserve sodium? Like you can still get a sodium that's less than, you know, a urine sodium less than 10. And so I find this to be that like this, that this may not always be the case. Um, like all the patients with CKD may still, even in advanced stages, could still pretty conserve sodium very well if if need if need be. That's the only thing that I'm like just reflecting on as I'm seeing what he's saying here. So I just attached an article from New England Journal of Medicine from the sixty yeah seventy seven, the reversibility of quote the salt losing tendency of chronic renal failure, and basically you know when you look at the figures here. It just take they can get down to very very low urine sodiums. It just doesn't happen in a couple of days. In fact, the figures show that it goes you know up to forty days before they'll have their maximal uh, sodium reabsorption. But they can do that. They just they just can't do it as quickly as you and I. So it isn't really quite uh, as bad as you think. It's just you're just going to be in trouble as, as a uh, if it happens acutely. So, so, and, and, and Rose kind of walks through the physiology there. He gives a, you know, the, and again, I don't know if this mechanism is correct, but according to the text here, he says that you, you can imagine as your nephron volume goes down and you need to remain in sodium balance, that each individual nephron now needs to excrete quite a bit more sodium, right? So if you're, you have a hundred milliequivalents of sodium and you were dividing it over a GFR of a hundred, the per nephron sodium excretion is much higher when you have to divide that over GFR of 25. And he proposes that there's some natriatic hormone that is increased in this situation and that that natriatic hormone may not be very responsive and that you have to have this gradual step down in sodium intake to be able to let that hormone fall off so that you can then retain sodium. Roger, is that the, is that the article that you're, support, you're, you're sharing? Well, yeah. I... 
Go ahead, JC. No, yeah. So I had a chance to review the article to Roger. Interesting. It's a very interesting experiment because they checked the urinary excretion of these patients at baseline. This is all advanced CKD stage five patients, and they had sodiums of a hundred uh, metacolins per day, kind of baseline excretion. So, and uh, on that at that point, they started decreasing the intake uh, of sodium by 10 milliequivalents per, uh, per week. So uh, they were down to 60, 40, and they eventually got to an intake of sodium of less than 10 milliequivalents per day, which I thought that was impressive. So, they, so by decreasing the intake gradually, they were able to appreciate the reduction in the urine, uh, urinary sodium gradually. So that's what the authors were trying to do. Instead of Inducing salt depletion abruptly, they did it over a long period of time, and the urine sodiums nicely came down. But I kind of agree with Letty in terms of the clinical observation. Uh, it's not something that I clinically observe periodically that CKD patients are prone to perrenal esotemia. I mean, I'm, I, I, this is the first time I read this. Yeah, I, I find, found it fascinating, this experiment. But, you know, I think CKD patients are prone to AKI. And it's typically pharmacological type of AKI or something else. But I didn't have this notion that they are vulnerable to perrenal zotemia, but this is what they say in this chapter. Okay. Then he talks a little bit about salt-wasting nephropathies. So this is separate from our CKD. These are patients with diseases, usually tubular and interstitial disease. He brings up medullary cystic kidney as an example. They'll have water losses of two liters a day, 100 milliequivalents of sodium a day, which is kind of a weird thing. That sounds like normal water intake and normal sodium intake. I, I don't know how you would notice that. I, I guess, you know, if they stop eating and drinking, they'll still have those obligate losses rather than be able to reduce them. And he gives various uh, mechanisms for the salt-wasting nephropathies. He says that um, increased uh, urea will act as an osmotic diuretic. They can have damage to the tubular epithelium to make it more aldo-resistant. I just feel like this is a lot of time spent on a thing that I feel like I don't see. I feel like there are very few patients with CKD who I'm worried about their low volume status because of their poor salt intake and their massive salt losses. Like yeah. I feel like that just doesn't jive with my feeling of the people that I take care of. Is that is that fair for you guys too? Like yeah. these yeah. people eat salt because they're humans in America. And like, this is just not a problem that I feel like rings true. So yeah, I was intrigued by this comment. Also, I, I, this is not something that we see, but this is probably more pertinent to pediatric nephrologists because I was looking at this reference that talk about medullary cystic diseases. And the one that I have seen a couple of patients throughout my career are the uromodeling mutations, you know, the autosomal dominant TKD uh, patients that are under the cohort of, of, of Anthony Blyer that follow this, all those patients in the country followed by him, I think. And again, this is my end of two, and none of them had any type of salt wasting. But I read more about this, and there's, there's other diseases, like this nephronophthesis, nephronophthesis, which is a different mm -hmm. type of mutation, and we don't see those patients in adult medicine. And I, apparently those children do have salt wasting. And this is what I read, but I have never seen a case. And I wonder if that's what he was implying in this paragraph. I don't know if yeah, I think you're right, Abic, but but you know, they used to be kind of mixed together. And if you look 
all the old literature talked about medullary cystic disease and salt wasting, but I think you're right. And that's more of a pediatric disease. And so I think, you know, they may see that. I also have a family of uh, uromodulin and uh, and uh, a mother and two daughters. And they, you know, they don't have any problem at all with, you know, with, with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, when have I seen salt wasting that I've been convinced of salt wasting is really, you know, bad chemotherapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, how much ifosamide and cisplatin was being used when he wrote this chapter. But to me, that's where, when I've seen it, it's from, it's from really severe, severe tubular damage from chemotherapy, where I think it's pantubular damage, you know, not just one little part of it. It's not, you know, yeah. proximal tubular fanconies. It's talking about big time damage. And then, you know, you really have to worry about it. But it is a highly unusual for salt wasting. And again, it gets back to the there's so many parts of the nephron that can make up for the others. It's kind of like the diuretic story. And then he concludes the section on renal losses by talking about post-obstructive diuresis. And here he says that he, he says, you know, this is not really pathology. This is just physiology. This is usually the kidney catching up to retain solute and retain water. And it's usually a, an appropriate diuresis. Uh, after releasing the obstruction, he does recommend the 50 to 75 milliliters an hour of half normal saline. And then he briefly talks about DI and uh, that it's volume loss, but it is mostly uh, pure water loss. I don't know if uh, you guys remember, but going back far enough, it was, the big concern was the the uh, diuretic phase of ATN. That patients, you know, they're going to get volume depleted because they're, you know, putting out all this salt water when in fact it's basically the same thing as the post-obstructive diuresis. They're excreting the salt water and urea that they've retained when they're in renal failure. But I can remember, you know, days when you better give them fluid and wean them off it slowly because they can't concentrate. Mm-hmm. It's still a I mean, question on boards. I just was just going to pull the group. Like, do you have an approach on how you deal with post-obstructive diuresis in general? Do you do this 50 to 75 mils per hour of half normal saline? Or are you just kind of like volume resuscitated yeah. the person's showing signs of hypotension kind of thing. Yes. Uh, we, what we do or what our urologists have come up with is pretty smart actually, is you give half the year, you give half the year and output back. So if you give it all back and they're having a, and they're trying to put out six liters, they're going to put out eight liters and you just drive the polyurea. But if you always give less than they're putting out as they slow down, you'll slow down. And it's a kind of a, it's kind of a mindless way of doing it, but it, it seems to work really quite well. And I think they give yeah. typically half the year and output with half normal saline. Yeah, but I I sometimes don't give if the patient is very volume overloaded to begin with. Yeah. Then I just I want them to auto diet. Yeah, that's that, so of I course that makes sense. Do it, yeah. 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 Right. So maybe start that after a day yeah. or two. Yeah. We, we actually had a consult on that just today of like of a of a patient with this and you know the but they the hospitalist was giving all the fluid back and they're like I can't keep up with the urine output and like like no don't. There's do a it. reason for that. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> And also depending on what the urea is, right? Because if the urea is, you know, 50, it's not going to be much. But if it was starting at 200, then, yeah, you're going to have a lot more of the asthmatic diagnosis. Yeah, I remember early on, uh, Josh, when I was at your stage, right out of fellowship, a friend attending, and I was, you know, gung-ho, chasing the, the urine output, and a patient was eight liters out, I gave the patient back six liters, like 75%. And, you know, six days later, I'm see, I'm looking at my patient, seven liters in, seven liters out. I'm like, what am I doing, <laughs> right? And, I, and then this is what I did. You go back, okay, what is the literature? What is the natural history of post-obstructive diuresis? Well, the last, 
there's really not good literature on this. Okay, and I found one study at that time. This is 10, 15 years ago, and they average about five to six days with an approach that resembles what Roger described, which is giving back fifty percent uh, of the urine output. So I started doing that, but then the more you read about this, is what all the things that Melanie, Amy, and Gerald just said—that is, you know, they need to get rid of the urea, they need, they have salt retention. So honestly, lately I watch and decide. Sometimes I do nothing. If they yeah. if the creatine is nicely coming down, they feel great, vitals are fine, sodium is stable. I do nothing. We just over medicalize healing, right? Just <laughs> let yeah. the patient heal. That's, right? that's the one way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he then goes on to uh, skin and respiratory disorders. And I love I love this kind of the beginning. He's like, there's uh, 700 to 1,000 milliliters of water that's lost by evaporation. And this is insensible losses. And this is not sweat, right? This is just lost through respiration. This is lost through the skin. This is pure evaporation. You can't sense this at all. This is the 1,000 to, this is uh, 700 to 1,000 a day. And then on top of that, if you're exercising in a hot, dry climate, you can have sweat. And that can be one to two liters an hour, ultimately. Um, and that uh, the loss of pure water, the evaporative loss, there's no sodium there. That's a pure water loss. And so that's going to come from the total blood, total water volume, two-thirds intracellular. And then if you have sweat losses, that's going to have a small amount of sodium, 30 to 50 uh, mill equivalents per liter. Uh, more if you have cystic fibrosis, right? I think it's like 70 to 80 urine sodium or sweat sodium in, in CF. And he points out that thirst is the primary compensation for this. Sweat sodium losses can result in hypovolemia. And then he points out that if you have uh, disrupted skin, so burns or large uh, wounds, then you'll lose fluid with a electrolyte content equivalent to blood with a variable amount of protein. And then he closes out the section just mentioning the term bronchorrhea. I had no, never heard of this term before. This is excessive pulmonary losses, bronchorrhea. That's just... Sounds disgusting to me. It sounds disgusting. <laughs> That's right. It just There's sounds a reason disgusting. we're not pulmonologists, right? Like, mm. Yeah, urine is usually I, sterile. I've never heard you know? of that concept. I've never I don't heard want it. I never read it in a consult. I don't ever want to see a patient with that. It just sounds terrible. Joel, you're never allowed to say that word again. <laughs> That's good. We're going to name the episode, the Broncoria episode. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't taken a careful look at the cases. Are any of the cases a patient with Broncoria? I'm just curious. No. Ah, missed opportunity. No, they're all I women looking, with eating disorders. I am looking <laughs> forward to writing a board review question of a patient with severe Broncoria. <laughs> <laughs> You're really going to separate the podcast listeners from the podcast <laughs> listeners by doing that. We're, we're going to inflict we're going to inflict pain and suffering on people that don't listen to podcasts. If you know what, what people like Broncoria, I have no idea what the guy's talking about. The stem is terrible. <laughs> okay, then third spacing. Can I say that this terminology was confusing to me? Like, I, I just don't think of hemorrhage as third spacing. I think of hemorrhage as like the blood is going out under the ground. That's not the third space. That's like the bad space of non-space. You know, it's like the airspace. I need to do something about it. It's not in the third space. I think of, is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, that's, that's weird. Fair. 
Yeah. yeah, no, that that I also thought that part was weird. Like it just like it, yeah. it buries the lead on hemorrhage, right? Like I feel like hemorrhagic shock is its own thing, and it totally gets underplayed throughout the chapter. Hey, where, and I we'll thought talk he, about where, it more later. Where the for example, a patient with fractured hip may lose fifteen hundred to two thousand milliliters of blood into tissues adjacent to the fracture. That's not ble- blood leaving the body; it's blood inside the body that's just no longer accessible. But he also thinks of like blood into the GI tract as third space. It feels like it's all kind of lumped together in the discussion. And I don't other think examples, that physiology is Other different. examples include intestinal obstruction, pancreatitis, crush in, oh, bleeding. Never mind. You're right. Bleeding's in there. As with trauma. Good point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see. That. You're right. You're right. And it's I'll- just like that happens commonly enough compared to all this other stuff we've talked about that that feels like it deserves its own category. And really deserves its own like resuscitation and like fluid approach. You're waiting for the dogs, I know. You're looking forward to bleeding dogs. I <laughs> Someone else bled the dogs for me. I'm just here to tell you about it. That's- <laughs> These scientists are the worst. <laughs> They're killing dogs all over the place. Okay. Present present company excluded. What is the first space and the second space? I think he's talking about the uh, intras- intracellular, extracellular. That's what I think also. Yeah. So what? So first space is intravascular, second space is interstitial. I never thought of that, that and third before. space is when it's no, somewhere else. I think the third space is the interstitial, right? What's the second? Well, the extracellular space has the includes the intravascular and interstitial. Okay, how about this? How about we're going to have a voice of God that's going to define the three spaces? We definitely need that. I don't think it's yeah. I don't oh think God, that's a great question. No, I never crazy. thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Okay. You don't. You guys don't think it's the interstitial space? Outside? I don't know. I just well, we never no, talk about it. We only talk about the first one because isn't is edema? Is it edema? Like isn't edema uh, yeah. oftentimes yeah. considered third spacing fluids? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's that would be interstitial fluid, right? First space is going to be intravascular. I think. Okay, we're going to figure. We're going to figure this out. Anna thinks she has escaped this. She has not escaped this talk. She will be joining us as the voice of God. When you start a search about the third space, you get a lot of hits on sociology websites. In sociology and urban planning spaces, the third space was made conceptually popular by Ray Oldenburg in the early 90s. The term in this context referred to the places humans inhabit. The first place is the home. The second place is the workspace, because those are the places in which people typically reside chronologically, in frequency, and in importance of their life. The third spaces then are places people don't necessarily have to be, but choose to be, like coffee shops, the places in between the first and second places. Of course, the use of this term in medicine far precedes the early 90s. In the 1960s, Tom Shires from UTSW published observations that the contraction of extracellular intravascular space was disproportionate to the amount of blood lost in hemorrhage patients. The basic idea that followed was that the extracellular volume was made of interstitial fluid, as well as transcellular fluid, which consists of things like gastric secretions or CSF or intraocular fluid. These transcellular fluids are not in any sort of dynamic equilibrium with the intracellular compartment, whereas the interstitial fluids are. Essentially, the surgical and anesthesia community for a long time surmised that the decrease in extracellular volume was due to a movement into a hemodynamically separate, essentially transcellular compartment. 
The decrease in extracellular volume has been demonstrated in dozens of tracer dilution studies using radio-labeled sulfate or bromide, allowing the tracer to reach equilibrium, which one could imagine being difficult post-trauma, and then remeasuring that tracer. Bromide, of course, enters red blood cells and is excreted in bile, whereas sulfate is bound to plasma components and it accumulates in the liver or in the kidneys. So techniques for measurement, estimation of equilibrium times, and then the measurement of excretion varied wildly, and so of course the results were variable as well. Some studies even found expanded extracellular volume rather than decreased extracellular volume after trauma or surgery. Needless to say, the more modern meta-analyses and reviews in the surgical space have relegated this notion to mostly mythology. Even so, I was able to find some perioperative nursing textbooks describing the spaces as follows. First space would be intravascular, the second space would be interstitial or edema, and then the third space would be fluid accumulation into an area normally having no fluid. In medicine, as we channeliers just mentioned, we mostly think of the third space as the interstitium. It makes sense given that we are physicians who ordinarily aren't tasked with managing or causing broken anatomic barriers that we wouldn't consider the existence of a distinct pool or sink of lost fluid. Given our use of the term, though, it begs the question of what we're considering the first and second spaces. Using that Oldenburg definition, I would argue, and I think I'm in popular company here, that medicine doctors consider the first space to be the first and inescapable space IV fluids enter, that is, the intravascular extracellular space. Given that, the second space would naturally be the intravascular intracellular space. Though chronologically secondary, we typically assume that our fluids will eventually inhabit both these physical locations, the intravascular intra- and extracellular spaces, and we choose fluids with this distribution in mind, particularly in situations like hyponatremia. At the time this book was written, though, the belief in the possibility of a transcellular third space in the perioperative community was still one of debate and study, which is likely why the book is a bit confusing on this distinction. Bear in mind that when talking to physicians in other specialties, the term third space may not have equivalent meaning. Then there's an interesting, he very specifically says that ascites due to cirrhosis is not a third space. He says that the rate of accumulation in ascites is slow enough that there is time for renal sodium and water compensation to maintain balance. And that I guess the important thing of third space fluid is that it accumulates quickly and that you don't have that with ascites. And so he does not include that as an example of third spacing fluids. So and that, that must be fact, the fourth space. Well, he says that in <laughs> fact, those. No, but I think the important thing that he points out is that those patients, um, they, that, that it, that they don't have volume, true volume deficiency like you see in third spacing and that they have this neurohormonal imbalance that makes it feel that they have the same normal nor, neurohormonal milieu of volume deficiency, but they have primary renal sodium retention causing that problem, I believe is what he was saying. Well, it's interesting because clinically when most of the times when we talk about third spacing, it's is very often in the context of a patient with cirrhosis. And according to this paragraph, uh, the edema, which is part of the interstitium, is not the third space, and ascites is not so cirrhosis. Not. So there's no third spacing in cirrhosis then, huh? That's what he says. This is, he said he specifically calls that out as something that is not third space. You can, re- you can put your reference in. Burton Rose, 1999, Clinical Physiology of Acidates. <laughs> What he might be saying is a third space, but it's slow enough that it doesn't cause volume loss. 
You're not hypovolemic from it. I think that's what he might That's what he's saying. He says you're not hypovolemic for it. But it's weird but because it's they have all the neurohormonal responses of hypovolemia, right? Yeah, they sure do. They've got the high aldo. they got the t- increased sympathetic nervous system. I mean, it really looks- and No sodium in their urine. Look. No sodium in their urine. And if you really. do a giant paracentesis on someone like this, like they suddenly get kidney injury. And is that because they have suddenly lost fluid from the first space, which is intravascular, we think- to this third space that it's not the third space. Like, I guess I'm confused about the relationship here. It's the 2.8 space. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. That is that section. The next section is the hemodynamic responses to volume uh, depletion. Unless anybody has any other comments on third space, fourth space. I think I probably mentioned it. A couple of the clinical scenarios that we face and, and critical ill patients I think that he mentions the intestinal obstruction. I think in, I think it's a, a good a good uh, chunk of patients that we see where they have uh, in, uh, bowel obstruction or they have intra-abdominal um, surgery and they and they have uh, really they can they can have a, a large amount of fluid trapped uh, outside the, the intravascular space. And the other example that he cites is the crush injuries, which I assume he refers to rhabdomyolysis. And I think that's a great one to keep in mind because, as we know, we have probably discussed in the previous episode, rhabdo doesn't cause toxic ATN without uh, the this third spacing of, of fluid, uh, at least from the experimental data showing that if you infuse myoglobin to an animal, that doesn't do anything unless the animal is well depleted. And I think this is one of the uh, good examples of, of, of third spacing uh, rhabdomyolysis. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great point because that's also another one where the physical exam can be deceptive because you can start to examine their legs and they got all this edema and you're like, oh, there must be fluid overload, and that's just the edema, the response to the injury, and they they're still going to be volume depleted because they've third spaced all that intravascular volume. <laughs> I can't. Letty is giving me the dirtiest yeah, look. I cannot I believe know, that. I, know. I feel so bad now. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to no, hurt well, you. We just, have, we just no, no. We just have to put this um, this uh, voice of God thing before all of this discussion, <laughs> or maybe we say after. We're we're just dis- uh, my, we- my guess is it's very ill defined that we're going to go through and we're going to try to find the definition of, of third space, and we're not going to find yeah. a, defi- a, defi- a definite space. So. I think it's every it's third space is what you want. You manifest it in your mind. It's where you don't want the fluid to be. Maybe. Yeah, I think it's from, if you read this sentence in the chapter, it says, it, it sounds like the first space is intravascular, the second is interstitial, and the third is the third space. I don't think it's intracellular or extracellular. I think it's those, this is a, just an extracellular discussion. If, from so the this first is all sentence. extracellular. All the spaces are That is what I understand from this first sentence of this. Uh, but it's weird because the edema of rhabdo is in the interstitial space. Yeah, we gotta keep up with we gotta keep up in the fraud. You have RTA, you know, type one, type two, and type four. We don't have a three. You know, it's just the distal is before the problem. There is no second space. There's probably not a second space. Yeah. But you guys are making me question. I thought I was sure that what we're talking about is the interstitial space. Because like, well, that's what too. we use clinically. You know, when yes. nephrotic patients are all at them, oh, they're third spacing, yeah. we say liberally, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. we're wrong. Right. <laughs> Okay. Maybe it's like the fourth wall, right? Like you're breaking the fourth wall, breaking into the This is what happens space. when you get high with nephrologists. Okay. Hemodynamic responses to volume depletion. The initial volume deficit results in reduced venous return to the heart. 
And this is detected by cardiopulmonary receptors in the atria and the pulmonary veins, leading to sympathetic vasoconstriction in the skin and skeletal muscle. Uh, and that will increase your venous return. More marked volume depletion will result in decreased cardiac output and decreases in blood pressure. Uh, this drop in blood pressure will now be detected by the carotid and aortic arch. So you kind of move away from the heart as the volume, in terms of the, where it's detected, as the volume depletion gets more severe. And this will result in splanchnic and renal circulation vasoconstriction. And this will maintain the more important cardiac and cerebral circulation and return the blood pressure to normal via multiple mechanisms due to um, increase in blood pressure due to increased venous return, increased cardiac contractility and heart rate, and increased vascular resistance due to sympathetic tone and angiotensin. Oh, excuse me, increased renin leading to increased angiotensin 2 causing vasoconstriction. And all these mechanisms can fully compensate for a 500 milliliter loss of blood, which is a 10% blood volume loss. Uh, and he says also approximately the volume of a blood transfusion, a blood donation. So that you can, you too can experience the wonders of volume depletion by donating blood. And then he says, so I want to plug my shirt for National Blood Donor Month, which was in January. But also if folks feel crummy after blood donation, platelet donation is takes a little longer. But you have no volume depletion because you get citrate back. You have no hemoglobin loss because you get all your RBCs back. And if you were wondering what citrate toxicity feels like, you get a little tingliness in your lips and you get to take some Tums and it goes away. So it's like really cool as like a patient experience. So highly recommend. The other thing I would say about this section that I thought was really cool um, was that like it highlights the hemodynamic changes that you can follow in volume depletion, where heart rate really is like the first clinical change that you can see. And I think we all see this, like heart rate going up is the first sign of volume depletion, not hypotension. And then the thing we're going to get to next, like orthostasis is your second most sensitive indicator of volume depletion. That's right. With 16 to 25% volume loss, this will not compensate for blood pressure when the patient is upright and will cause postural dizziness. So that's the hemodynamic response. And then he goes on to the symptoms of hypovolemia. Any other thoughts on the hemodynamic response? Symptoms of hyponatremia. Three sets of symptoms can occur in hypovolemic patients. Those related to the manner in which the fluid loss occurs, which is a weird way of saying it's a symptom of hypovolemia to say that the vomiting that causes the hypovolemia is a symptom of hypovolemia. I'm not sure if I buy that. Uh, so vo vomiting, diarrhea, and polyuria were those three. And then those due to the volume depletion. And then finally, the symptoms due to the electrolyte and acid-based disorders that accompany volume depletion. Oh, I guess that does make sense. So that the symptoms that you see in hypovolemia are either the symptoms that cause the hypovolemia due to the hypovolemia or due to the secondary electrolyte dis uh, disorders that you get with hypovolemia. That does actually make sense. I take back my statement. Sorry about that, Dr. Rose. Um, he says that the symptoms of hypovolemia are primarily related to the decrease in tissue perfusion. Early symptoms include lassitude, fatigability, thirst, muscle cramps, and postural dizziness. How many of you had thirst on your hypovolemia review of systems? Nope. 
dizzy. Not so much. Dizzy yeah. Are you standing. thirsty? I mean, I mean, have I, you I seen? I mean, the, the only times I've seen cramps, I mean, is our dialysis patients or somebody that's over diuresis. But I, you know, I don't think I've seen anybody just coming in cramping from you know whatever else, vomiting or diarrhea or blood loss. We see a lot of dialysis. Yeah, diuretics. Diuretics. Right? Yeah, diuretics and yeah. diuretics and uh, and dialysis. That's something I, I. It's on my list either. You know. And then as it gets more severe, abdominal pain, chest pain, lethargy, and confusion. And organ damage, basically. Yeah, those are exactly end organ damage. Great, Letty, thank you. And then here, this is this was the sentence for uh, Rogers says symptomatic hypovolemia is most common with isoosmotic sodium and water depletion. In contrast, pure water losses causes hyper hypernatremia which results in movement of water from the intracellular compartment to the extracellular compartment so that two-thirds of volume loss comes from the intracellular compartment, which minimizes the decrease in perfusion. Well, not only that, it's even less because uh, the other third, two-thirds of the other third, or three-fourths of the other third is interstitial space. So it's not even intravascular volume. So, you know, the, the example I like with to give with the residents is diabetes insipidus is a pure water loss. And for you to be show signs of hypovolemia or azotemia, you're going to have to be in pretty big trouble. The symptoms of diabetes insipidus is always hypernatremia because it's water loss and the blood pressure will be fine. And the other, the the other extreme of that, so that's pure water loss. So I like to say, you know, the, where do we ever lose saline? It's short of blood loss. The only fluid I've seen that's even close to saline is uh, is from uh, uh, ileostomies. You know, they're so rich in sodium and potassium that that's like essentially pure volume. And those patients will come in with normal electrolytes, except of course the bicarb, the sodium will be normal. The bicarb is often very low because of the bicarb loss, but they'll come in with a normal serum sodium and, but renal failure and hypotension because that's all volume. And I like to, you know, and then every other thing else is in between. So if we talk about half normal, I say, well, that's like a, you know, it's like 500 cc's of normal saline and 500 cc's of water. And you can break everything else down and, and decide where they've come from and what effect it'll be more on, on the sodium and the volume. And just like we always do in nephrology, we consider those independently. Yeah. Well, I mean, vomiting, I think, causes pretty profound volume deficiency. That's not one of the ones that you listed. And they and it's interesting because well, there's not it t- it, tons it takes of sodium a while. there, right? There's no much, well, but, there's it, but it's going to take a while. I mean, acid. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's mostly a, it's mostly so the low. cation is primarily hydrogen, right? Yeah, but I think I think that they get the secondary sodium losses in the kidney, right? They get the they get the they get the obligate sodium uh, renal renal sodium losses as they have the as they have the bicarbonaturia. Yeah. So 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 Joel, if you're right, I mean, it, again, it's not the vomiting itself; it's the secondary renal loss that can do it. Yeah, so but it's part of think, the vomiting syndrome. Well, right? it is, it is. But I'm just talking about what a fluid does not a, not a clinical syndrome, but what the fluid does to your volume and your sodium. And I like to always break those down into what they're, you know, what the constituents of them are. He goes into it later with the different kinds of diarrhea. They're, you know, there's osmotic and, and not osmotic. I, it's, it's so funny because that was, that was the next one I was going to bring up. It's like, what about your cholera, right? That's another profound volume deficiency. Those patients are really sick, but that's a secretory diarrhea. And those are going to, those are going to have a quite a bit of uh, di- the, the stool sodium yeah, is also quite think- a bit higher in that disease, right? Exactly. Yeah. Compared to the osmotic no, diarrhea, I think of that as more. What you say, Letty? Having the tendency to cause more volume depletion than the vomiting, like also because I think the volumes are are much more Large. different. Yeah, yeah. And I think Amy, you were going to say something too. Oh, I was just going to say to Roger's point, like if someone 
is hypovolemic from DI. They're really, really sick. I actually have a guy on service right now. He's got, he's actually catatonic. He came in catatonic with fever on lithium. So all of a sudden came in with the sodium 159, shot up to 170, still fevering, crazy sick. I mean, he's crazy dry. His heart rate's like 150. He's a young kid. So obviously he can compensate. His blood pressure is doing okay. And so, you know, he's on 400 cc's of D5W an hour. And, you know, he's in the ICU. And I'm like, this guy is crazy sick. Like if, if I can't get his sodium under control, you guys are going to have to throw down an NG tube. I get it that he's not with it. But like, if you don't, if, if I can't combat this, I mean, he's got nephrogenic DI. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have any tools. You give him free water. Yeah, but I mean, he's probably very, very, very volume down for his sodium to be that high, and for him to be very tachycardic. Well, I think normally we don't think of free water as like a as like a volume. But I think the important part of that is that it's not just DI; it's GI plus altered mental status. So he wasn't able Mm -hmm. to respond to his thirst response. Right, which is yeah. normally what prevents them from getting from it getting tr- profound volume deficiency is that they start drinking water like mad. Right, like mm-hmm. the most the most interesting thing when I when I saw a patient with a kind of a profound DI was I asked them when you get up in the middle of the night, do you get up to drink or do you get up to pee? And they're like, I get up because I'm thirsty. Right, that's what drives them to get up. And then, of course, they also go to the bathroom because they have to pee a ton. But it's interesting because I recently saw a patient in clinic on tolvaptan for polycystic kidney disease, and that's exactly what the patient reported: getting up in at night four times because of thirst uh, was the initial trigger. And it's you know we're talking about DI is exactly like you know what tolvaptan does. Yeah. Yes. Drug-induced DI, <laughs> DD. We're talking about the symptoms. We talked about the DI. Uh, he talks about the electrolyte disorders from symptoms, muscle weakness from hypokalemia, polyuria, polydipsia from hyperglycemia and hypokalemia, lethargy, confusion, seizures from hyponatremia, hypernatremia, and hyperglycemia. And then my favorite one was the extreme salt craving is unique to adrenal insufficiency. And then patients will eat salt off their hands, reference 18. <laughs> Have you, is that part of your adrenal insufficiency review of systems? Do you find yourself eating salt off of your hands? I've never... Uh, has anybody seen salt craving? Just in a barter. I think some of these get, kids with general adrenal hypo, uh, uh, hyperplasia, some of them will really salt crave. And, you know, th- one of the thoughts, too, about this whole, you know, oh, yeah, um, I've heard of this pregnancy thing. pickle story is that it's a salt craving because, you know, you're expanding your extracellular volume very quickly and you, so you need extra sodium. I don't know if that's true, but I've, you know, I've heard that that it's not pickles isn't, I mean, I, it, may be, it may be total craziness, but but the idea behind the pickles is to get a big salt load because you really need so much more extracellular volume when you're, when you're pregnant. I don't know. Am I sounding like a uh, caveman, uh, Melanie, or no? No, no, it's true. Did, did you crave pickles when you were pregnant? So I didn't crave pickles. I craved actually like salty crackers um, in the yeah. first trimester. So, okay, my pregnancy story is perfect tonight. <laughs> Maybe, oh, now you wouldn't even like it so much. Okay, so third child, 
everything's working out, work-life balance, yay. I'm pregnant with number three. And on Labor Day, I was carrying number two to go swimming, and I tripped and fell and broke my leg. Oh. And so I get a cast. Um, My due date is the next day. I get a cast, okay? And um, and then, you know, luckily I'm late, so whatever. We have the baby the next week. And uh, and has anyone ever broken no. a leg? No. Because if you've broken a leg or an arm or anything, you know that the cast, until um, there's some early healing, the cast just keeps the bones in place so they don't rub against each other and move. And so as long as you're still or the cast is well-fitted, you have no pain, okay, until the bone begins to heal. So... I deliver the baby and my daughter, and uh, within a few hours, my cast did not fit anymore because after delivery, I started to get rid of all that extra plasma volume. So I needed a new cast later that day. And then the next day, I needed a new cast again (laughs) because... My, it didn't fit anymore. It was too loose. And it was very painful because it was a fresh fracture. And then a week later, I needed one more new cast. I needed three casts in a week because of all that expanded plasma volume, which I didn't appre- I didn't think I had any edema at all. But I I guess I did. Yeah. did so did, I just did you that call? Is very Were you cool. paying like a, a diuresing like a Oh, murder, my God. Right? Absolutely. Like crazy. Yeah. Diaracing like crazy. And then my cast didn't fit. It was too loose. They had to come send the guy to, you know, put the, cut off the cast in, you know, in labor and delivery and give me a new cast. That's a good story. I thought you'd like that. I'm looking forward to that, to be honest. I have a DEMA since now. I'm like, what's going to happen next month? You're looking forward to the diuresis? You're looking forward to and the baby. What are you more excited for, the baby or the diuresis? Just be honest, I don't okay? Know. <laughs> it's not like we're recording this and she'll have to hear it one I day. I know. <laughs> you guys are blackmailed. Right. <laughs> Do we know the, the the physiology of that whole thing? I mean, you know, the progesterone falls acutely when you deliver the placenta, I assume. And but that but but progesterone is a uh, is an aldosterone antagonist. So you'd have less of that. So you'd think it'd kind of be the opposite or something. Do we know, or is it just, I mean, something's telling you to just, oh, the baby's out, time to pee it all out. Does anybody, do you know? Well, you know, I, I, I do know that the normal values for all the hormones is different in pregnancy. So normal renin, normal aldosterone, normal angiotensin two. those values are all much higher in pregnancy. And so then I'm presuming once you're not pregnant anymore- yeah then everything goes back. And and part of that may be, you know, you have normally some type of angiotensin 2 resistance. We know you have vasopressin resistance because you have vasopressinase um, normally. So it might just be reversed. I could do a voice of God thing for that if oh, you Oh, I'd wanted. love it. I think that's so fascinating. But Joel was shaking his head. And I don't know if that's because he's petting his dog or... <laughs> the reason I'm shaking my head is... It's hard to say that there's vasopressin resistance because their urine, their serum sodium drops during pregnancy. It goes, even though they have vasopressinase, their sodium drops out to one third, right. right? As a normal sodium in pregnancy. So they actually have an increased total ADH activity. 
Okay, I can't tell you everything you might want to know about these hormones during pregnancy in a hot minute, but here are some teasers. The way we think about normal renal physiology is completely upended in pregnancy. Now, we have all learned that shortly after the first missed period, say weeks four to six gestational age, there is systemic vasodilation with decreased systemic vascular resistance and subsequent lower blood pressure. We also know that this stimulates the maternal circulating renin angiotensin aldosterone system to retain sodium and water to increase the plasma volume. These changes lead to an increase in cardiac output, renal blood flow, and glomerular filtration rate. But if you think about this a little more deeply, it becomes more mysterious. First, we do know that the kidney is not the only source of renin and angiotensinogen. The ovaries and the normal placenta contribute too. Further, why does the kidney's response, sodium retention, seem to behave opposite of the hemodynamic adaptation, which is vasodilation? So this would not be a voiceover from Melanie if I didn't share an old study. This is one from 1973. I have been told about this study since my training, but this is the first time that I ever read it, and actually it's very disturbing. I will wrap up with the disturbing part at the end. First, the relevant part. Investigators infused angiotensin II into nulliparous women. The majority of the women required significant doses of angiotensin II in order to increase their diastolic blood pressure by 20 millimeters of mercury. They seemed resistant to angiotensin II. That's the normal arrangement. But a subset of women did not exhibit that resistance to angiotensin II, and 90% of the non-resistant women went on to develop pregnancy-induced hypertension. It's been postulated that this resistance is related to progesterone and placental growth factor, but it's not fully understood. The disturbing part of this study, besides the fact that they did it, is that the participants were 13 to 17-year-old pregnant individuals, and only a fraction of them were white. And of course, there's nothing about informed consent in the whole paper. Okay, but I digress. So I've shared with you that there is resistance to angiotensin II. What about progesterone and aldosterone? That story is complex. Progesterone can indeed occupy the mineralocorticoid receptor, but it's not a very potent competitive inhibitor, so aldosterone's effect can predominate. Thus, Roger was right when he mentioned that high aldosterone counteracts the natriuretic effect of progesterone and natriuretic peptides, which were released because of the increases in plasma volume. As for vasopressin, there is an increase in vasopressin during pregnancy, which results in a physiologic reset osmostat, such that the normal serum sodium during pregnancy is typically in the low 130s. One very interesting theory for why this occurs is that the osmolality of maternal blood would then be lower than that of the arterial blood in the umbilical artery, favoring movement of water to the fetus. Retention of water is critical. Remember that the fetus, placenta, amniotic fluid needs some water, plus that extra water in the maternal plasma volume. Now, I, I haven't seen a case of gestational DI, but my understanding is that it's clinically apparent only when you have like a bruptial placenta, not in a regular pregnancy, uh, that, that the vasopressinase becomes an issue leading to DI. Because like you said, 
I've never seen a case. It seems to be rare. So it, it seems like whatever basal production of vasopressin is, occurs in the placenta might be amplified in the context of a brachial rupture of the placenta. I don't know. What another voice of that? <laughs> Evaluation of the hyponatremia patient. Are we ready to move on? Okay. Know that if the losses are insensible, the sodium should rise. Uh, and then he has the volume depletion refers to extracellular volume depletion of any cause, while dehydration refers to the presence of hypernatremia due to pure water loss. It's like the, those are the watchwords of our faith as nephrologists right there. I, one <laughs> thing I like about this chapter is he keeps repeating this over and over, and it can't be repeated too many times. I yes. feel like I have this talk with people like on a daily basis, like water is not volume, salt is volume volume is not water like like the same things back and forth over and over again yes and then he says that the physical exam and evaluation is rather insensitive and non-specific and that the f and then he does have this statement he does have the statement he says that the among patients with hypovolemia due to severe bleeding the most sensitive and specific finding are severe postural dizziness and or postural pulse increment of 30 beats per minute or more, which is kind of a nonsensical sentence, right? If you are including only patients that have hypovolemia due to severe bleeding, which is how the sentence begins, then you cannot evaluate the specificity because you have nobody who doesn't have the disease. Everybody has the disease by definition. So you can evaluate the sensitivity, how many people that are positive in the presence of that finding, but you have no idea of the specificity. And in my experience... Postural changes happen way more commonly due to they have had diabetes for 20 years than the fact that they're bleeding. I don't find that to be such a, um, unless I'm misunderstanding what he's talking about, but I don't think postural changes are nearly as specific as he makes them sound to be. Yeah, this is a section that really bothered me. There's actually a really nice article in JAMA from 1999 that we can put in the show notes. So I think would have been available to him when he was writing or right around the time it came out. It's like a rational clinical examination of hypovolemia. So what signs and symptoms are really correlated with hypovolemia based on a big meta-analysis? And Joel's getting the right spot. It's it's axillary sweat that's like the best predictor of hypovolemia. And things like mild postural dizziness have like zero predictive <laughs> ability as to whether someone is hypovolemic or not. So I found myself just like angry at this section of the book for no good reason. <laughs> And so I kind of want to like tear out this page and just put that article in instead. So I'll make sure we put it in the show notes here. Well, but the, the, he also cites another, in this, in this paragraph, there's a citation number 20, uh, another JAMA paper from around the same time, which is the one that found in a meta-analysis also that the pulse rate of 30 was the one that performed better as a correlate of hypovolemia. I mean, my impression in this area of, physical examination of volume is, I lump it together with diagnostics, with ultra, you know, we live in a point of care ultrasound world, right? Who doesn't use that these days? We jump to the IVC diameter, lung ultrasound for pulmonary edema, et cetera. So I, 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 I see this physical examination findings and the ultrasound findings sort of on the same spectrum. And if you start picking apart one of them, none of them would survive. None of them would survive. There's, you're going to find studies that show that CVP is bad, IVC is not good, 
They are operator dependent, the patient on a ventilator, etc. And others criticize all the physical findings. Skin turgor is bad in, in elderly patients. You know, I, I mean, I think that you have to pay attention to all these elements in aggregate and make an assessment. I, I don't think this is a, it's a beautiful single test that will tell you the volume status of a patient. This is why, you know, this is the one of the hard parts of being a physician and, 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 and at the same time fascinating because how many times you have encountered a good a colleague who has experience as practicing medicine and you don't agree on the volume status. Even though we both have access mm. to the same information in the chart, we both examine the patient and we are not agreeing. I mean, it happens often. So it's got to be because it's not easy, right? And it's complex. So. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's exactly right. That it, it takes a global assessment that you're going to take. You're going to incorporate as much data as you can: physical exam, ultrasound findings, laboratory findings. At the end, history and even physical. then, you take a guess. You're gonna it's take true. A guess. It's true, right? Yeah. And then, and you reassess. <laughs> in the end, you, in the end, you give volume and see if it helps. And then, and then the ultimate finding, and then the ultimate test is the retrospectroscope. We're going to give it. We're going to do a therapy. Yeah, that's test, how. Right? You know, you look at this in ninety percent of these publications. What is the gold standard? It's retrospective. Three days later, we went back and we decided this is what the truth was. Yeah. If the patient got better with fluids, oh, right, and which is actually a different question because now what you're yeah. actually testing for is fluid responsiveness. Yes. That's, that's actually point. what you're testing not for, not so much volume status. Okay. He then does, he does talk about skin and mucous membranes and then arterial blood pressure. I thought this section on the, on the Tell arterial me. blood pressure was interesting. I think he Tell makes me. like a really nice distinction between peripheral blood pressure and central blood pressure. And then if someone is, hypovolemic and vasoconstricting their peripheral arteries or arterioles or like skin stuff, like you might get a different like radial blood pressure than you would like a central artery measure of blood pressure. I thought that was what I was reading here. Well, and even says that with hypovolemia, the Karotkoff sounds can disappear, which is like, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. And the other piece that I thought was really important was just like also this relative normal tension when, and it also, you know, correlates with the, that New England Journal paper where we're talking about normal tensive ischemic AKI, where it looks like the patient has normal blood pressure, but this is actually not what the kidneys used to. So it, it actually is hypovolemic or hypotensive for this patient. So I kind of I, I kind of like that too because I think it's really under recognized um, in the hospital especially. Excellent. And then he kind of talks about um, venous pressure and he says it's best done by looking at the uh, jugular venous uh, pulse height. And he kind of goes through uh, how to evaluate that, and then talks about some of the limitations of that regarding. Um, left-sided heart failure and valve disease and cardiopulmonary disease all can, uh, all can affect, and right-sided heart failure are all kind of uh, potential uh, pitfalls in using uh, JVP uh, to evaluate this. And this is something that I think is gaining new enthusiasm because we can, people can use um, point of care, point of care or ultrasound to measure this. Um, so another, another point to another way of getting, assessing, uh, Cardiac variable. 
which is a lot more sophisticated than looking at someone's uh, mucous membranes and their skin tinting, which I, I think is really... Not the I, I do. Never but do I that. the mucous I, I do. I do. I, 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 I do, uh, Roger. And of, do you really? Again, if, 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 if... No, no, no. If you push me to give you the evidence, <laughs> of course, I will fail uh, completely. I will not be able to bring you the evidence... Uh, I don't need evidence. <laughs> I'm fine with your experience. I, I find it, you as, again, as I said earlier, it's, I, I don't make decisions just on that, right? But it's just another element. It's part of my global assessment, and you do it. You know, he, in the, this chapter, he talks about the sternum, which is, you know, the upper chest uh, or the inner thigh, certain areas, forearm. Uh, and again, I take uh, uh, I give it uh, uh, value, Roger, when the skin tenting is pretty dramatic. You know, you're talking about lifting the skin and counting one, two, three, four seconds before the skin is back. You know, it's 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 really sometimes it's really dramatic. Uh, when you see those cases, it's hard to ignore. But most of the times, it doesn't really help. It gives you this, you, you finish with the same uncertainty. So to your point, most of the times it's not helpful, but every now and then it's pretty impressive that you cannot ignore it. And, and what I try to do is follow up, you know, 48 hours later after we replete it and you can see the difference. So it kind of reassures me that, oh, okay, maybe there wasn't, you know, a nonsense, but again, this is completely my anecdotal experience. And, you know, I, I don't have really any kind of solid evidence behind it. I have a, book that I bought as a medical student I was talking about all these physical exam findings like across the spectrum and basically they're all terrible (laughs) they all all have like 50% sensitivity specificity negative predictive value some are sometimes a little better than others but there's not really a good physical exam uh, clinical exam finding and I just um, put in the whatsapp chat a paper specifically about physical exam findings for dehydration, talking about skin tenting and dry mouth. And, you know, I see the fellows do this all the time. Patient opens their mouth, tongue is dry. Oh my gosh, patient's dry. Meanwhile, they have pulmonary edema. It's like three plus fitting. It's like the patient's not dry. Maybe they just have dry I mouth. Mean, I don't know why they have dry They're mouth. They're a mouth breather, right? That's another thing, right? Obvious. I have to comment. I have to comment on the title of this article: "Sensitivity and Specificity of Clinical Signs and Assessment of Dehydration <laughs> in Endurance Athletes." You know, it, no, I think this that, is a sports medicine. I understand. Article, it just so. gets back to what we talked about. <laughs> you know, the devil's in the detail. I'll find that book for you guys. But. No, but I, I listen. I totally yeah, buy you. I, I'm glad to hear it. I'm, I'm, I'm Team Amy. <laughs> but this J- is JC's counting this counting is a, skin for five seconds. Medicine, I'm Team Amy. Medicine that people try to practice these days, right? Is an iPad medicine. They try to convince themselves with these lousy publications that physical examination doesn't work, so therefore I don't have to examine the patient. And unfortunately, that leads to medical errors. So I, I think we have to acknowledge the limitations, just as we acknowledge the limitations of point of care ultrasound. This is nothing. This is not a battle. Of, this is the new test. So we should. It's the same reason why the point of care ultrasound groups are advocating. You know. Why do you ask who take? Crackles are not as sensitive of lung ultrasound, just an ultrasound. And again, I, I personally have a problem with that. I think it's 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 advisable to do they always help? Does it always help to ask who take lunch? No, but sometimes it's very helpful. So this is why you have to do it. And I, that's how I think about physical examination and volume. It doesn't always help. Of course it doesn't always yeah. help. But sometimes it's pretty helpful. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I, I do think there's no 
seeing the patient, it really gives you a good idea of kind of what's going on and doing those physical exam findings. But um, I agree with you. You've got to take it with a grain of salt. But it's just interesting that when they study that these exam findings that a lot of them are coin tosses. Some of them are better than others. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I think like three nephrologists argue about the volume status could be an hour long podcast every week for years <laughs> of like different patients. And like everyone has their favorite things that they love and everyone has their favorite things they hate. And I think like what it ends up coming out to is like you have a story of why this person is here in the hospital. You have a hypothesis of up, down, or pretty close to normal volume. You look for some stuff and see if it that's consistent with your hypothesis or not. And at the end of the day, like, do they respond to the treatment that I think is right for this or not? Is is the like the best test of that thing? Like, I'll allow myself like I am not a great JVP person, not only because it's really hard to look at, which I think is fair to say, um, but also because I feel like there's a lot of underrecognized tricuspid regurg in people, and that we look at lots of giant, massive JVPs that are all TR. And I think that goes under recognized. And so I think like, it really just depends on what your history is, what you think uh, is going on, and jo- then trying jo- something. Uh, Josh, and see how it you goes. know, physical, it, this is an old saying back in learning medical school, you know, history is not, is to be 85, 90% of the diagnosis. And a physical exam gives you 8% and you should only need two, 3% for the labs. You know, that's kind of an old saying. And this is what you're talking about that, you know, we're discussing assessment of physical exam and labs, but before that is what you said. What is it? What is a clinical? What is the scenario? What is the history, right? And that should always be the... And this is why uh, uh, I didn't dislike uh, what Martin Rose said, uh, Joel, that diarrhea or polyuria is a s- symptom or sign of, of volume depletion, because it's not, but... But I like because in a medical student uh, framework, it's important to integrate that information. You know, you, you shouldn't be thinking about a hypovolemia without a history, really, you know, technically. Uh, so I like that approach. Right, right. And, that, and, that com- and that comes from, you know, all of uh, uh, so how many times does your dialysis patient come into the hospital and the and somebody assesses them and says, you know, they were really hypovolemic. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> this patient hasn't been hypovolemic for 12 years. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's very unlikely that that's the case. Patient makes it all year. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and they're not always, you know, sometimes they're right, but usually, you know, there's, it's such an easy thing to lean on. They see a lot of hypovolemic patients, their pretest probability that they're hypovolemic is pretty high, but regardless. Okay. There's a, 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 a segment on the relationship between right atrial and left atrial pressures that looked at estimating that. And then he talks about the symptoms from uh, shock. This is a 30% loss of blood. These patients are quite sick. They have uh, tachycardia, cold, clammy extremities. They have cyanosis. They have low urine output agitation and confusion, and that he points out that this is a a medical emergency and that you need to restore perfusion quickly before you get irreversible shock. It's, you know, it's interesting because this is, this is before Manny Rivers early goal-directed therapy study comes out a few years before that. Um, But already kind of the building blocks for that thought process is being, is laid in the, in the textbooks at the time. Emmanuel Rivers is famously known for his 2001 randomized control trial published in the New England Journal titled Early Goal-Directed Therapy and the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock. His study focused on four main pillars to monitor and support a patient who presents to the emergency room 
with severe sepsis or septic shock. The first was a CVP goal of 8 to 12 millimeters mercury. The second was a MAP goal of 65 to 90 millimeters of mercury. The third was an SVO2 greater than 65%, and the fourth was a hematocrit more than 30%. These parameters were continuously monitored for the first six hours of arrival to the emergency room. And if parameters were not met, patients were either given crystalloid or colloid to meet the CVP goal, started on vasopressors to meet the MAP goal, transfused red blood cells to achieve the SVO2 if the hematocrit was low, or started on inotropes to achieve the SVO2. He found that there was a mortality benefit compared to standard care, and his recommendations were later adopted into the surviving sepsis guidelines. However, since its publication, the trial has been largely criticized because it was a non-blinded single-centered study, and additionally, the survival benefit of the early goal-directed therapy was not able to be replicated in later studies. Additionally, it's not clear if this early goal-directed therapy is only beneficial in emergency room patients presenting with severe sepsis or septic shock, or if it can be extrapolated to patients who develop shock on the floor or in the ICU who to compensate. And it's not clear which goals or if all goals are critical to the survival benefits seen. It is clear that patients who are treated in this early goal-directed therapy protocol often receive more IV fluids and have higher use of vasopressors, not to mention that CVP does not necessarily equate to fluid-responsive hypotension. In this section of the chapter, Bud Rose, he talks about symptoms of shock, all types of shock, and the importance of restoring perfusion, which is the foundation for River's early goal-directed therapy intervention. And then he moves on to uh, laboratory data and he lays down, uh, starts with the urine sodium concentration. In patients that are hypovolemic, it should be less than 25, 25 millimoles per liter and can go down to one millimole per liter. And then he talks about um, the metabolic alkalosis kind of loophole that can cause a concomitant increase in the urine sodium and recommends in situations like that, you need to look at the urine chloride. And I think he even... This is the one where he specifically calls out that they can get a urine, a urine sodium as high as 100 millimoles per liter in the presence of metabolic alkalosis, which kind of blew my mind. Like, I, I, I would have a hard time believing the patient was hypovolemic if I saw a urine sodium of 100. I mean, that was a, that was a, rather, a, a rather impressive number. Oh, so he says the urine concentration and volume depletion with gastrointestinal losses, skin losses, and third spaces losses should be less than 20, and that um, it can be greater than 40 if they have underlying kidney disease, uh, diuretics while the drug is active, osmotic diuresis, hypoaldosteronism, and some patients with metabolic alkalosis can have that elevated urine. So that's actually a pretty interesting chart, um, kind of something that uh, I think fellows should keep in mind, like when, when will your urine lights lie to you? You know, be aware of these circumstances you know, I think that's almost almost all the time. The most important thing about any kind of uh, blood test is know when that blood test is not going to be reliable. What are the clinical scenarios when you can't trust it? Very, very good point. Very important point with the urine. Yeah. And then um, uh, it says the renal artery stenosis is another one that can throw that off, that they will behave like they're volume depleted, of course, uh, but may not be volume depleted. He mentions the fractional excretion of sodium. And then he gives a, uh, a great example that the fractional excretion of sodium does not work well at high GFRs. And it's, it is kind of interesting. Like it, 
probably the a normal fractional excretion of sodium or the, or the line in the sand for fractional excretion of sodium should be indexed to the GFR, right? So the line, you know, as your GFR falls below, lower and lower, maybe it's not 1% that's going to divide between pre-renal and, and, and renal. Maybe it's 2%. And as your GFR goes up and up and up, maybe it's not 1%. Maybe it's 0.5% or 0.25%. And he kind of walks through the math that I thought was was pretty interesting. JC, I know you have some interest in this topic. Is anybody talking about indexing fractional excretion of sodium to GFRs? That, that nobody mentions No, no I haven't come across that, uh, but it's a very interesting concept. I like it. And, and part of it is that you know, some, some of the most of the data that we have looking at uh, fractional excretion of sodium is in the presence of acute kidney injury. So they're all have a low GFR, right? And so, and just extrapolating it into other circumstances is probably just w- not wise. If they don't have a decrease in GFR, you just can't trust the it's, lines in the it's an al- It's an oliguric low GFR, right? Like it's not just low GFR. It's like there's very low amounts of urine coming out. And in the low amount of urine, I'm looking at what that vena is, right? Like that was my understanding of where this number comes from. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Uh, JC, when you did your evaluation, were you limiting your what, – why, you, why, why don't you talk a little bit about your, your, your recent publications? Yeah, so I think I mentioned briefly in the previous episodes, we were interested in, in uh, looking at the concordance between fractional excretion of sodium and urinary sedima and microscopy uh, findings, essentially uh, how often findings of ATN in the urine – i.e. presence of muddy brown granular cats were accompanied by a concomitant elevated phenol fractional excretion of sodium greater than 1%. And what we observed, it was a large proportion of patients with ab- abundant muddy brown granular cast had fractional excretions less than 1%, suggestive of a perennial state. And in fact, one of the reviewers pointed out this, this aspect of the GFR, Joel, the saying that, well, if the GFR is above certain level, you know, your phenas are, are not going to be very helpful. But it didn't apply to our study because the average serum creatinine of our patients was around 3.8 or 4 milligrams per deciliter. These are patients with GFRs. Yeah, everybody was Everybody, everybody was, was, was This is AKIs. You know, GFR is less than 10. Uh, so definitely not a concern. But we were not able to, to collect urine output data in a reliable fashion, to, the, to George's point. Uh, we couldn't really, that was a limitation. You know, uh, uh, we couldn't uh, really tell how many of the patients where the FINA underperformed were because they were non-oliguric. But another interesting finding in our study that I, I like because it's not really well presented in the literature is that when we look at the concordant, we also look at a subgroup of patients that had pre-existing CKD and developed AKI. They are classic acute chronic to see how was the concordance. Was it just as bad, a little better or worse? And it was actually worse, uh, which is something that I think most nephrologists assume that if you have persistent CKD, your phenol is going to throw you off because you're going to have some, perhaps uh, some tendency to lose sodium or perhaps they are not concentrating the urine. It's something that we discuss in common grounds, but it wasn't really any publication out there. So it was nice that we were able to show that when you have acute on chronic, uh, the, the concordance between FINA and the, the uh, presence of ATN microscopy is way off, becomes actually negative. 
so it's just not helpful <laughs> at all, uh, which is uh, was an interesting finding. And then, yeah. uh, JC, I just want to I just want to ask you for a guy who just a moment ago was yes. really arguing for this global assessment that you want to get as much data as possible. Would you consider FINA yes. as part of that global assessment? Part of that as much? It's it's isn't it like the skin turner yes. of, I, of I urinary laboratories? Three circumstances are going to pay a lot of attention to the FINA. Number one, a patient with liver cirrhosis. Number two, a patient with a patient with acute yeah. decompensated heart failure. And then number three would be a patient who comes with the novo AKI, uh, no CKD, and is AKI and is oliguric. Yeah, and that patient, I'm not going to ignore the FINA for sure. I think it's, uh, and obviously not an adenoretic, et cetera. Outside of the three scenarios, I have my issues. But yeah, what was your question? <laughs> but in the first two, they're hypervolemic to start with, right? Like you're, no, you're, but you're looking for the, in- high, it's the, it's the high FINA that's informative in that situ in those situations. You super expect those gotcha. to be yes. low, okay. and when it's not low, you're like exactly. That's yeah. something that's and the, and that's the, the, the hepatorenal, the high fina is helpful. The low fina does not help. Gotcha. Unless they're on diuretics. Yeah. Well, correct. <laughs> Which they all are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the cardiorenal, I have to say that it's usually not a test that is as helpful. In cirrhosis, is definitely much more helpful. Because a lot of patients, not, 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 they're not always on, on spironolactone, and sometimes it's just more difficult to know what is their volume status than a heart failure patient. Uh, okay, so then he talks, um, urinosmolality indicates uh, ADH, uh, and that usually it's going to be greater than 450 if they're volume depleted. It's going to be impaired by renal disease, osmotic diuresis, diuretics, and DI. And that he also points out that severe volume depletion and hypokalemia will impair urea retention in the renal medulla. And so that they will get uh, the inability to concentrate their urine. And that he points out that isotonic urine does not rule out hypovolemia. I think that's I think because you get pretty isotonic urine in um, osmotic diuresis, is that right? That would be a good example. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Is that the one that he got? Or did yeah. I miss it? An AKI. Oh, great call. <laughs> and in acute tubular necrosis, where you're unable to concentrate. Thank you. So, when I was reading this, I was just thought of a couple others, you know, uh, that can impair where you could get fooled, and the osmolality might not be as high as you would expect. One is starvation. So. If you're not eating and you don't have any urea, you can't generate a gradient. So, you know, that's one of the one. And the other would be, you know, uh, uh, psychogenic polydipsia, where you're chronically suppressing ADH and you don't recycle the urea and get it into the, the medulla properly. And only because, you know, he's kind of encyclopedic about all these different things. But those are the other two I was going to add to that list where you may not have what you would expect the urinosmolarity to be despite uh, volume depletion. Okay. And then he talks about the BUN to creatinine constant ratio, the medical student's most favorite finding of all times. Does anyone actually use this? Like, is this a thing that any nephrologist actually looks at to decide if this is previous or not? I look at it all the time. Why? Why? I'm I'm glad that I got back. I'm glad I got back at this because I want to trash it. To shame me? Yes. I want to trash it. Well, Tell me I, I, okay. So I have I am very familiar with the handful of things that throw it off. 
And so I don't get fooled by GI bleed and I don't get fooled by starvation and, I'm, and I'm, uh, steroids uh, and steroids and high to- protein tube feeds. I'm familiar with all of those. So I don't get fooled by that. And that I find it's, it is one of those rem- remarkably reliable findings that, you know, not always when you're in profound acute kidney injury, but if you're just trying to say, hey, is this patient a little dry, that BO to creatinine ratio smoothly wraps up. And I love the physiology behind it, that it is this proxy for the filtration fraction, which I think is just so elegant. And I love that it, it, you can see that on a common lab. And so it, to me, it is a little picture into glomerular physiology that we get on every basic metabolic. That's why. Yeah, I mean, I guess just for me, the 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 number of permute the number of permutations (laughs) is just it's too much for it to actually be helpful. And I think, I I think that in in and of itself is not a reason why I dislike it, but more so because I think it leads to people having early closure and making um, management decisions um, based on this and not considering other things. Like no, but if it's greater than twenty one, it must be prenatal. We have to give fluids. So I just don't like the implications of it when, um, you know, when, when, when you're so dogmatic about stay, you know, f- following the, that 20 to one ratio. I think and, and I know Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That, that was, was really well done. Already. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I know JC said this already, like there's no one lab test that will be validated to show us that this is the volume status of the patient you're looking at. BUN creatinine ratio is particularly bad, though. Like, there's like two studies that show there's no correlation between BUN creatinine ratio and volume status and fluid responsiveness. So we'll I put I put those uh, links in the in nice. the WhatsApp and we'll put them in the show notes. Um, but like big retrospective studies show that we can't figure out how to use these tests appropriately. So unless you are a Joel and you know who the person is to apply these tests to, like I don't know how to use these tests, so I'm not sure how how other people are supposed to use these tests or how I'm supposed to advise other people to use these tests. No, I think I, I agree that it's, it's a lousy test as a ratio in general. If you look at all, K, all AKIs as a whole, it's going to perform poorly. But once again, if you have a patient who is in clinic, had a creatinine of 2.0 and a BON of 42, and then the cardiologist put a patient on metolazone, 2.5 daily, and the lab started a week later, the creatinine went from 2.0 to 2.4, but the BUN went from 44 to 97. Is that helpful or not? You know, I think there are situations where the BUN and creatinine ratio, it, yes. But again, once again, we're starting with a pretest probability, right? There's a history that led me to think. Yeah, there's that history of the metolazone, yeah. and then like, how is this person looking? And also like, if this person looks pretty good volume status wise, can I live with her having a BUN of ninety? Sure, I can live with that if she's cool. No, you know, that, like a hundred percent. But one one of my other favorite things to do is the the graph of the creatinine on, with the same on the same graph as the BUN to creatinine ratio, and watching to see as that ratio ramps up and the creatinine just. I just think it's just like oh. I know exactly what's happening here. We are seeing a, we are clamping down on that uh, efferent arterial. We're ramping up the filtration fraction, and that B one is rising out of proportion to the credit. I, I, to me, it's, it's following it's really, salt and water. You know, it's following salt yeah. and water. So, yeah. you so, know, I, the, the time I I don't you know use it that much, but I like to teach about it, and and so you know when we see these high B one credit ratios, we always go through it and we talk about the fractional excretion of urea, and you know 
which is the inverse of the fractional reabsorption, which will go up if you're pre-renal. And so it's a kind of a good lesson for the residents and the fellows to, when we go through that, um, you know, and ask them what it'll be, what's high or what's low. And there is no high, there's normal and there's low. And, and, and I, I find it useful to kind of do it as, a, as an exercise. The, the problem is, is that what doesn't go into the equation is people that, you know, the ratio can go up if you don't have any, if you don't make a lot of creatinine yeah. either. And I've seen some really whopping ratios, not because of renal and not because of urea is being handled anything oddly. It's just that you really don't have any creatinine. You have, you have no muscle mass. And so, you know, there are a lot of things go into it, but I, it is a fun discussion. Um, so I, I do like, I like the discussion. I think that's another good selling point. I just wanted to just say one thing about BUN to creatinine ratio in GI bleeds. They're volume depleted. It's not the, it's not the protein in the blood metabolized to urea. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you brought this up in an earlier episode and, but didn't we say that, or I, maybe I said that there was, or there was the study where they uh, were putting blood products down in G tubes yeah. like, of people. And that's why it went up just a little bit. Right. Yeah. But those patients didn't have AKI. So yeah, it's not, I think that BUN doesn't go up to 200 in GI bleed alone, it's not accompanied by perennial state. But if you, in perennial states, don't get to 270 BUN all day long, it's rare. So I do think that my interpretation is that GI bleed makes the azotemia worse, not as the sole driver. So it's kind of like hyponatremia and renal failure. Like you added water and you can't get rid of it. So here you add urea and you can't get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, I, Okay. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah, it. yeah. Maybe it's a it's a better way to to phrase it. And so after the BUN to creatinine ratio, he kind of runs through a bunch of other lab tests. And the, the, my favorite one is the plasma sodium because he's got this table fourteen four. And I just mm. wish this could be tattooed on every medical student in the in the world. He says the plasma sodium concentration and volume depletion he says maybe sodium uh, uh, sodium greater than one fifty. You know, insensible water losses, sweat losses, and the uh, a central or nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, or uncontrolled DM. And then maybe less than 135. All other forms of volume depletion, right? <laughs> I just love that. It's like, uh, and just, just further emphasizing the sodium cannot tell you the volume depletion, the volume status, right? It can go up, it can go down, it can be euvolemic uh, a great bit. And then uh, he, and then he kind of goes on to, please. There should have been a middle column, though, with normal sodium that could have been all different types of all, renal all failure. Co- all causes of volume. Right? Status, Just yeah. depending on how much water you're drinking. And then um, uh, plasma potassium concentration, again, not a hint towards volume. Volume status can go up or can go down. And acid-base status, he has another table uh, giving the kind of the standard uh, acid-base, nothing super interesting in there that I could find. And then kind of closes out the val- the lab section on hematocrit and albumin talking about uh, hemoconcentration. And we are at two hours mm-hmm. and I am going to call a long it. chapter. Okay. Yeah. And we will come yeah. back. I have to agree. This was, a, this chapter was a dud. It just, I mean, there were lots but, of, we, but know, don't we want to come back and, and do a quick uh, treatment in, in next month? It's, 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 it is another 10 pages. We do get the, the bleeding no. the bleeding out of the dogs, which would be fun. Oh, it's not. We're, we're not done, done with the diagnosis, but not the treatment. And I think we, I kind of, 
This, wait, wait, wait. This chapter of all chapters gets two yeah, episodes? It's a, well, Melanie's right. No. It's a dud. But it's a total dud. I couldn't agree more. But this Thank is you. so essential. Thank you. This is an important Can this chapter. be like it a... It is important. This a, is, it is important, but it doesn't can this the case, so basic. I think you're going to... Well, it's our job to make the second part better than this part. You know? It, this is... I kind of feel... I kind of really feel what JC's gonna, saying. Like, I think, like, like let's... Come back and let's do it better than this, what Burton Rose did. And I think we did a good job on the diagnosis section. Oh, I, I think, think we, we really I think we did a good discussion, but it was yeah. still a dud. I think it's we can not, like it's also, not nephrology. Yeah. It's just like you know, but, uh, but critical care one hundred and one or something. Yeah, well, I but just feel like yeah. okay. Isn't that what is so great about studying fluids and electrolytes? Is that it's not just nephrology. Is that what we're really doing is internal medicine? That this is just like how you take care of patients. But this is hospital medicine. No, I, I, let me re, let me rephrase. I mean, you're absolutely right. I just, you know, all these chapters up to this point, you know, you have to think like crazy to understand what's going on at every level. And I'm barely keeping my head above water. Yeah. And here I'm like, you know, yeah. this is like, this is, I've never read anything so easy in this book. It's like 10 times easier than anything else I've read. That's, that's my point. And Plus, we've done most of it already, <laughs> but the whole night was worth it for what Letty oh said. Oh my God, really, Letty, that was that was It really was. It, and, and you you actually, you isolated exactly what the problem with it is, is that it is so simple and everybody grasps it and then they hang on to it with both hands as tight as they can, right? And you're like, oh, come on, it's not that good, right? I like it for the reasons I explained, but it is not no panacea. Right. Yeah, and what we have to discuss is street things. So talking about what fluids to give, how to give That'll fluids. Yeah, it, it, the chapter is not. I think whatever it's really is important. This is yeah. important. And and, it, and and if Josh can't talk about his isotonic <laughs> bicarb, what a waste! I want to no, hear. I, just I want to hear the rant. <laughs> I, <laughs> Wait, but so are we well, going to do balanced solutions? I think we should do that. I think we should do that. Yeah, so, okay. So, I think it could we'll, even be we'll like a micro episode. Oh, it doesn't have to be yeah. like a yeah. big so delusional. Yeah, no way. <laughs> <laughs> right. This chapter was yeah. delusional. If we, we don't, diluted this chapter. This was a delusional Josh, chapter. If we don't have enough to talk about it. I heard there's frog I feel tongues. Like I'm a super excited. No, no guinea pig, guinea pig guinea tongues. Pig they tongue. sense, they sense this salt with the enac channel. So that's how you can oh tell if something is salty. Oh my god, this is awesome! It's so oh cool. Oh my god, that um, did not make I it should, into Animal House. I don't know. I should tease. I should have teased the amylaride like year. every episode, like a little like. <laughs> oh, I guess there's no time to talk about amylaride today. Looks like okay. It's a running dude. <laughs> yeah, like like Jimmy Kimmel. Like apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time this thing my dog is going bananas of course because my dog always has to pee at the two hour but mark it's a, it's a reliable marker that we need to stop recording so um, uh, I'm, I'm like your dog I have to pee too <laughs> <laughs>